y'all. This is She Looks Like Me. It's season two and we are back. And I'm so excited because my first guest, she's lit. I love when people that I connect with connect me with other dope women, dope black women, especially. And so today's guest is Delisha Grant. She is a corporate attorney, podcast host, and speaker. She holds degrees from both the University of Pennsylvania and the George Washington University Law School. Delisha has 11 years of legal experience counseling technology, media, and entertainment startups, as well as working within the Fortune 500 landscape. Delisha is also the host of the December 26th podcast. Hey, podcast bay. Okay. A weekly show designed to inspire and educate those seeking to exhaust their potential, aka me. And she is the curator of The Weight of the Weight, a full day interactive seminar that encourages single women to become the highest version of themselves and happily wait on their happily ever after. Delisha is admitted to practice law in the state of New York. She has served as a volunteer attorney for New York Business Solutions and the New York City Bar Association's Foreclosure Defense Project, as well as a lawyer mentor for a three-day startup, a nonprofit whose mission is to kickstart new student-run companies and build entrepreneurial capabilities in students and their university communities. She's the co-founder of the House on Stephen Avenue Fund Incorporated, a 501c3 organization committed to the advancement of underserved communities through initiatives geared toward youth enrichment, young adult job readiness, and economic support of families in need. I want to know what is bringing you joy these days. Can I say this? Because the family is not in support of it, Virginia Saritha on Nat Geo is bringing me a lot of joy. And part of that is related to our conversation today about her just journey. And people think when you are a genius or when you're great at something that you come out of the womb and you have it all figured out, but it takes a while to kind of find your rhythm and find your niche. And for her, it took time to find her sound, which I knew before watching this series, but it's bringing me joy just to see this journey and how she overcame so much trauma. And it took a while in the industry to really find her and become the queen of soul. Podcasting is bringing me a lot of joy and planning for the next phase of this year after a rocky start. For those who don't know, which would be basically everybody but us, Dr. Jamel Rogers from episode eight um, on season one, she was the one who connected us and she just kind of sent the introduction and she was like, hey, you guys need to connect. What Simone over here is doing is dope and y'all need to talk. And as soon as we got on the line, like you gave me your rundown of like your background and what you had going on. And I was just like, that's my story. That's me. That's me too. Yes. All the things. And so I was like, we have to convene on an episode and talk about that. And then thinking about what it all boiled down to, I think one of the, or two of the themes that resonated with me the most in our shared experience were the idea of running your own race and doing all the things. So, right. And that's another reason I read your whole bio, right? Because it's like your bio is doing all the things. Some people might get overwhelmed by that, but as long as you aren't getting overwhelmed by that, that's what's most important. And as long as it is filling you up and giving you the things that you need, then you're living life on your own terms. And I think that's really important. That's why our theme today is running your own race and doing all the things. I want to know from you what your interpretation of that is, and then I'll share mine, but I want to hear yours first. What does that mean to you to run your race and do all the things? Running my race means, particularly because I chose 
an area or a profession where there's a blueprint, right? Like you get on this track, you get on that track, you get on that track. And everybody, like 95% of lawyers kind of fall into very specific categories. So running my race for me looks like creating a career that I can enjoy that is going to help me reach my goals, both which have some things to do with long-term career, but some of it is personal. It's the, the resources that it affords me to do those other things. And that is sometimes or has been for me in the past 11 years, doing things in a way that's so non-linear compared to a lot of my classmates and coworkers, et cetera. So running my race and knowing this is not textbook, it's not blueprint, it's not even what people think may be the right choices for somebody of my stature, but it works for me. And running that race sometimes means putting on those horse blinders and not looking to the left and to the right, checking people at times and putting them in their place about their opinion about what I should be doing. And making sure that I maintain my peace about my decisions, even when it doesn't look like I made the right one. Because even running your race, sometimes things get a little janky, right? And that has happened for me where you're like, well, am I in the right arena, let alone running the right race? So it's maintaining that that semblance of peace, even when things are not going your way. So that's the first piece. Doing all the things. That phrase can have a lot of connotations for people, many of which are negative. But for doing all the things for me means taking stock of my passions, my interests, my talents, and my purpose, and putting all of those things to use. It doesn't mean that you're doing all the things all at once. It doesn't mean that you're manic and you're pulling your hair out because you've overextended and overcommitted yourself. It means looking at everything that's been placed on the inside of me and making sure that when I check out of here, I've poured all of that out. And that's a multi-year, multi-season, multi-chapter process. And people look at the resume and they're like, yo, she's done it all. She's doing it all. It doesn't mean that I'm doing it all at once. And doing all the things means setting all the things up in a way that you can manage them and maintain your own sanity as well. Listen, my definition don't even matter after that. Just (laughs) that. That's my definition. (laughs) I mean, basically, you hit on all my points in terms of running your own race. And and we're going to talk about it a little bit more in a second, because it was one of the things that I know you touched on when we first met was just that whole comparison piece, especially for those of your counterparts, your friends, your peers who are in corporate or did take a more traditional track and are winning. Okay. (laughs) Winning. And, you know, this journey, like another episode, I had a episode with a friend of mine named Lily May. And she talked about how when she first started her business and her money was a little funny and, you know, all her friends were going to Jamaica and she couldn't make it. It wouldn't come along like everybody else's stuff was. So definitely that and the running your own race part. And then in terms of doing all the things, like you said, serving all of the pieces of you, right? Through your purpose and through your work and making sure that, like you said, you left nothing on the table at the end of your life. So when it comes to running your race, what does that look like for you? So I know you talked to me a little bit about creating a lane that worked for you, your unique path. Some people are doing a nine to five thing. Some people are like, nah, I'm going to be a full-time entrepreneur. And then some people are somewhere in the middle where they're like, no, I'm going to keep these health benefits over here at this job. And I like, you know, I've got tenure or I've got whatever. So I'm going to keep that, but I'm going to do my thing over here as well. So in terms of running your own race and defining your own life. How has that played out for you? I know it hasn't been easy, but if not easy, what has it been like? I'm just going to walk you through 
my professional journey. And then you can decide where you want me to expound. But, you know, I grew up and I hate to sound like, you know, stereotypical in some ways, but it's the truth. I grew up in a you know single parent household. My parents were married, but started having issues pretty early. So it was like in and out, in and out. And then they finally separated for good and then divorced. And while my dad was all over the place, my mom really saw something in me. And then eventually my brother came along and was like, I'm nurturing that. My kid is smart. She's got a lot of interests and talents. So I grew up involved in a ton of activities. My mom, you know, was kicking door down, doors down for me to go to certain schools. Uh, went to public high school. I wanted to do that. My mom's like, you need to be well-rounded and know how to get along with everybody, not just these like uppity prep school kids. And then I went from there to Penn, right? And so I entered the Ivy League with this expectation that I would go to college, go into a Fortune 50 company for a bit, go to a top law school and be at a white shoe law firm making six figures, working all the hours and whatever. Like that was the plan. And I would stay there and I would make partner and eventually I would do the very traditional route. And I started that way. I did everything on the list through college. I finished school early. I got a job with the Johnson Johnson company. For my age, I was making great money. And I got into law school still with the same plan and went to this top 20 law school or wherever GW was at the time. I remember going to my first summer associateship, right? Those who don't know, when you go into law school, the expectation is that you're about to work for free the first summer and then you're going to get your like big internship, what they call an associateship, the second summer. Like most graduate students, I'm living off student loans. I was like, I got fine, something paid. I can't be out here working for a judge for free, right? For the first summer. And I just so happened to be sitting in the lounge with a bunch of my black classmates. There wasn't that many of us. So we hung together and there was a reception going on for something called Twin Cities Diversity and Practice. So it was this collective of law firms in the Midwest, in Minneapolis, who were trying to bring diverse candidates from top schools to the area, which was really underserved in that department. We all knew that it was going on, but everybody was like, I ain't trying to go to Minneapolis for the summer, like, nah, be. So nobody's at the reception. And our one Black employee in our employment group comes into the lounge and is like, this reception is going on, like nobody's there. And we're all like, yeah, because it's the Twin Cities. And he looks at me and he's like, Delisha, you have corporate experience. There's a corporate rotation as a part of this. You would be a great candidate. And not only that, they're paying $2,000 a week. I was like, say what now? <laughs> Two grand a week, you know, for a student. Put me in the game, like, you know, whatever. So I go to this reception. I end up really connecting with this one firm and I end up getting this opportunity. Go there for the first summer. It was cool. For the second summer, they invite me back. And I get there and I realize, okay, y'all still in diversity and practice, but you didn't backfill a first year rising too well into the position that I had last year. So that was the first thing that kind of set the bells and whistles off for me. I eventually realized that I wasn't moving to Minnesota for a full-time position. Now, the expectation when when you're in law school is that wherever you work your second summer, if they extend an offer to you, that's where you're going. And I had gone through some things with them from a diversity perspective. And I started hearing rumblings in the community where I knew it wasn't the right fit for me. So I came back to school with an offer in hand after some drama and with law school programs, everything goes on a schedule across all schools, 
you know, all the major law firms, it's like when medical students get matched, right? Like, so you have a day, like you have to get your offer by a certain day and you got to accept by a certain day. When that day came, I was like, nah, this isn't for me. And I knew it in my gut. So that was the first bump in my career where I was like, maybe this is not going to be as smooth as I thought. Not only did I do this, I did this in 2008. Every industry was like imploding, right? It was the Great Recession. So people were losing their offers. People offer, people's offers are being deferred. And I'm like, I'm not taking the offer. So it was like the stuff legends are made of. People were coming up to me like, I heard you rejected your offer. Are you crazy? And I was like, no, just not for me. That was the first time I started thinking about maybe I'm going to do the entrepreneurship thing. I'm really interested in startup and entertainment. Like I'm going to just figure it out. And I ended up graduating. My grandmother died five weeks before my law school graduation, who I was really close to. So I'm shaking up. I'm like, I don't have a job lined up. My grandmother just died. What am I going to do? I remember preparing for the bar. I had to take out a bridge loan, which they offer to graduate students to study for bar exams, boards, all that stuff. Now, if I would have gone to a firm, they would have paid for that. But because I turned that offer down, I had to take out another loan after six figures of loans for school to prepare for the bar, register for a bar prep course, took the bar, passed the bar. I have no job lined up, none. So at this point, I'm subleasing my apartment in DC where I was living. I moved back home. I'm living with my mom and my grandfather, who's now a widower and is blind, right? Legally handicapped. So my mom's taking care of him. I'm trying to figure out what's next. I'm like, hustling, just doing random job, like temp jobs and all this other stuff. And the people I went to school with are starting their $160,000 a year job. This was the first chapter of me being like, what did I do? I don't know if I've now made the right decision. How am I going to sustain myself? Like, what's the plan? Right? So at that juncture, I ended up getting a temporary opportunity at a litigation firm in New York. So my plan was, I was like, all right, I'm going to work this. And while I'm working this, I'm going to build out a practice. So from the beginning, I was like, I'm about to just do solo practice thing, whatever. Let me leverage these resources and go from there. Here's the trap for people who want to run their own race, but are really good at what they do. Opportunities to get out of your race and into somebody else's, they're always going to come. The number of people that come to me and be like, when I can afford you, you on my team. And I'm like, I'm my team. Like, what do you mean? Like, everybody wants me on their team. And so, yes, absolutely relate to that. Yeah. So my plan at the time was, let me get to this money through this, you know, temper opportunity, which was paying pretty well. And then I was like building out this thing on the side. Well, the the law firm was like, you want a full-time job, right? And I was like, oh, that's not, A, I never wanted to be a litigator. B, you know, I'm trying to build this other thing. And it was my mentors who were like, girl, you better take that job. Economy is weird. You're a new lawyer. You don't really know that much. Take it. So how I went about it was I counter offered them like some outrageous amount of money because I'm like, okay, I'm just counter offer. If they don't take it, then I know this is not for me. And they were like, yeah, we can meet pretty much all of that, like minus like 10 grand. So this is somebody who's been a broke law student for three years, right? struggled through a summer of preparing for the bar. Now it's like this temp thing that could end at any time. And they've pretty much met my demands for a job I do not want. And I was like, let me just take it. That was like the first example of me jumping off what I thought was my race. Now I'll say this, right? Because I want people to understand, and I'm a firm believer that like 
every decision you make, good or bad, you can always get back on track. Everything is a worthy element to your story. And when you walk in purpose and you believe you have a divine destiny, there's a certain GPS that life has. Well, you'll still get there. It's no different than like being on Google Maps. You make a wrong turn. It just redirects you. But eventually you will get to the same destination. While I may have made some decisions looking back where I'm like, eh, I don't know if that was right. It all worked together. So I jump into this job. Every plan I had for what I was about to do on the side, I no longer had time for. I'm now a litigator in the trenches, writing briefs, taking depositions, traveling all over the country as a young lawyer. And it was no way to manage both. But what I did do was continue to make connections and maintain those connections. So the second year of that, I remember I had a a loss. A friend of mine, she wasn't a good friend, but a friend had liver cancer, didn't tell anybody. And by the time we found out, she was on her deathbed. And I'm not even 30 yet. Like we're all in our late twenties. You know what I mean? And we get this news that by the time we found out it was a matter of days. And I remember going to her funeral and we left the funeral and the repast. And me and my homegirls went out that night and we were shocked. Like we were just like stunned. And there was something in me that was like, life is too short to be doing things because you think it's a safe conservative things to do. I'm not happy in this job. I'm exhausted. This is not what I wanted for myself. I pulled out my Blackberry and I emailed one of the named partners at my firm and said, are you available for coffee on Monday? That is when I had the conversation with him about being ready to leave. And I got out of there. Like it wasn't immediate. They were very supportive. It was an, an amicable split. They even kicked me some work when I left for the first few months that helped me get my practice up and running. And what I ended up doing was like, I got an office in WeWork. This is before WeWork was everywhere. They had like one or two locations in New York. And I got this little office for like $600 a month. And I launched this startup entertainment practice and everything was grand until it wasn't. So when I was a litigator, I still had these contacts in New York who were in media and entertainment and like startup. I had taken some meetings. I like knew people. So when I started my practice, the day I turned the lights on, I, I had my first client because I started making calls like I'm making the switch. I know you're looking for a lawyer. You're about to launch this business. You're about to get into this production company, like whatever. So I had clients to start. And then remember, I had this really friendly departure from my old firm. Like I was billing out to them, right? It wasn't the work that I marketed, but it was what work that I knew how to do. Not only am I building this clientele, But every month I get to send a billable invoice to another big law firm that's working on settlements and cases worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So they're just paying them. It was amazing. So I I like had this income stream and work that I didn't really enjoy, but like was helping me to invest in the practice that I had. And then when I left, I had savings, you know, I had a bit of an emergency fund. I had startup costs, money for that, et cetera. Right. So it's working. I'm going to entertainment conferences. I've got a freelance assistant who was like helping me as needed. I was paying her. Things were straight. Okay. For that first year or so, that's the the train I was on. I had no worries. I wasn't like killing the game where, you know, I'm making hundreds of thousands of dollars, but I'm making enough to pay my bills at the office, to pay my bills at my home, deal with client issues and grow the practice or whatever. Then the partner who I was cool with at my old firm left. I knew that was happening. Like when I 
was departing because he he also said you could either come with me if you want, leave them, come with me, or go on your own. I chose to go on my own. But when he left, the dynamic with that firm changed. So the deal was there was a certain element of work that I was going to do for them for a certain hourly rate. If that work changed, then the hourly rate changed. Another partner there took me to dinner and was trying to convince me to take on this other work that was really complex at the same hourly rate. And I've never talked about this publicly. Right. And he wined and dined me at this really expensive restaurant. And he's like, come on, you know us. We want you to do this other work. And I said, yeah, I'm willing to do it. But that warrants a different rate. And I also know the money that you're making off these cases. So what you're doing is you're increasing your profit margin by having me do the work pennies on the dollar and no, not happening. And also it felt a little bit me too, if I could just say that, like it it felt like this, you know, come on, honey, you know, whatever. So I left that meeting feeling empowered because like, you know, that that was my first standing my ground as a business owner and like, no, you know, I'm going to command this dollar amount, whatever. And I remember while he and I were having the conversation, I was in an email conversation with another attorney from the firm about a new case. And he's like, this case, the work is about to be off the chain. When you hear that as a lawyer, it's like, you just see dollar signs, right? You, you see the cash register. He's like, I need X, Y, and Z from you. It's about to be great. We can work together to be great for your practice, you know, us, whatever. So I'm like, okay, I'm already setting the budget for how I'm going to take that money and grow my practice, right? I'm like, I might be able to hire somebody, whatever. After that dinner where I didn't agree to do this other set of work for the same rate, he then blackballed me and banned anybody from using me at the firm. So the spigot was cut off immediately. I think I invoiced for whatever was outstanding. I never got work from these people again after that. It was very abrupt. And I wasn't spending money like crazy. So I wasn't baroque because they did that. But what happened is it changed the revenue model for my practice, right? And you got to remember who my core clientele, who they were. It was startups and people, yes, in entertainment, but new artists, new managers. So these are people who can't afford for the most part to pay me top dollar. I had a couple of clients who were paying top dollar, but I was out here like A&R. Like trying to find people early, work with them and guide them through the process in hopes that as their business grows, we grow together. So over time, it wasn't right away. The money started to look a little funny. And what I didn't understand and other lawyers tried to warn me about is that law firms for even businesses that have money, law firms are often often the last people to get paid because most lawyers are not going to go through the trouble of suing you for their money or putting you in collections. Because it raises a lot of questions. You open yourself up to like ethics lawsuits and then being like, well, she didn't do what she said she was going to do. So people just owed me money and just might pay or they might not. And then dealing with startups, you may have a startup that is well-funded today. They go off on some zany project or idea or new product line. It doesn't work and they're out of money. And now they can't pay you. Now in this process, I had also moved offices. I didn't have a fifth, I had a fifth Avenue office because as a black woman in this industry, I thought that was going to grant me credibility and all this other stuff. So I'm watching like my income go from steady to like up and down, up and down. And you as an entrepreneur know when you get to that point, it creates a level of anxiety because then you're like, well, what can I do? Right. Can I, can I invest in this brand development? Because if I spend this chunk of money, 
Is it coming back to me? And people can talk all this stuff about manifestation and being conscious. And you just got to know that the money's coming to you and you got to send the right signs to the universe. All of that is great. And I'm all about manifestation and I'm all about speaking those things and walking like it's here. But when you got a stack of bills staring at you and you spent six grand on some stuff that you needed for the next phase of your business and you don't know where the next check is coming from, it's really hard to be Zen and all woo woo 24 hours a day. And that's what people need to talk about more for people who are able to do that. And just feel like, you know, I, I have a millionaire mindset at all times. I had 72 cents in my account, but I knew this is what I was born to do. And I just meditated on the next check and the next client and boom, it came. And I was in peace the entire time. Good on you. That ain't my story. So over time I watched, it was like, just it was a perfect storm. It was like certain clients stopped paying. New clients weren't coming through the door as quickly as I would have liked. I was going through a lot of stuff personally, bad relationships, loss, like personal loss, deaths. It was like everything was happening at once. And the straw that broke the camel's back is I had a huge opportunity on the table. I was working this deal and the deal was going to put a ridiculous amount of money in my pocket, like money I could live off of probably for a year. And I was like, this is it. Like, this is, this is the replacement. This is my vengeance. This is like, I knew I made the right decision. This, this firm, you know, dropped me, but this is the thing that's going to put me over the top. The deal fell apart the night before it was supposed to close. And I remember being in this meeting where the person that one of the, the the folks who had to really cut the check for this to happen got cold feet and was like, I don't even know if I want to do this. And I'm trying to talk him off the ledge because there's a lot at stake. And he's like, no, nah, I don't I thought it was the right thing. I was excited. Now I don't know if this is for me. And I said, okay. And it was the first time in my career where you could probably see on my face how affected I was. Um, Cause he said, I know you're probably upset the amount of work that we've done and what this was going to mean for you as well. And you know, whatever. And I couldn't even like hide it. Usually, you know, it's all professionalism, all business, but I, I was just stunned that I had invested so much in this and I had invested some money for resources to make this happen. And I had neglected other clients, didn't take on some clients to be able to make this work. And now I'm in a situation where it ain't closing. And I remember walking back to my office because also I did a lot of walking in Manhattan those days, like trying to save money. I went in my office, I closed the door. I remember sitting, sitting at my desk and I just completely broke down. And it was the thing that sent me into a complete depression in entrepreneurship because I had launched my practice right after my 30th birthday. I had a joint 30th birthday uh, slash launch party. My fam and friends were there. I launched with much fanfare. At that point, I had access. I was getting invitations to invitations to events. I was on lists for magazines, parties. I mean, magazine parties. I've been to the Hamptons. I knew this person. I knew that person. So on the surface, people were like, you killing it, right? But my <laughs> books and records, okay? The profit and loss statement was telling a different story. And what people don't realize is that you can be making money in your practice or your chosen field, but your expenses are different as an entrepreneur. There are things that you have to pay for to keep the business afloat. So as a lawyer, I not only had a brick and mortar office and looking back on it, I should have been more confident to say I'm a virtual lawyer. I don't need a brick and mortar office. I don't, that doesn't give me any more credibility. I know what I'm doing. 
But at the time, I was like, I'm a black, I'm a young black woman. If I'm meeting people at the coffee shop, they're going to be like, she's not doing this for real. But I had all of that overhead. So I've got home expenses. I've office expenses. I've got professional responsibility insurance. That's ridiculous. That premium. I have legal research fees. I've got to pay every month. I've got taxes, you know, all of these things. And at some point, the income just wasn't matching the output. And I remember I went home to, and I've told this story before. I went home to my mom's for Thanksgiving and I was supposed to be there for like a day. And I had client issues I had to come back to and all this other stuff. Went to my mom's for Thanksgiving, was on her couch, got up the day after Thanksgiving and I was supposed to drive home. And I was like, I can't, like, I just can't, I can't face my life tomorrow. And tomorrow turned into the next day, turned into the next day, turned into the next day. That is when I realized that this is not working for me. I thought this is what I wanted, but maybe it's not. And what are people going to think? What is my community going to think? Particularly in black communities, when like you do something big, they're like, oh, you're it. And they hold you up as that thing. To this day, all they call me is an entertainment lawyer. I haven't practiced entertainment law <laughs> and God knows when, but to black folks, that's a big deal, right? And because they've seen the photos and they've seen whatever, they're like, no, you know, decent entertainment lawyer. I don't even do that anymore. Like, let it go. But that's what they want me to be that so bad, like still. And I have those skills. I choose not to use them. And furthermore, entertainers are crazy. That business is crazy. And there's a lot of depressed people in the business. One of my homegirls, she is a writer, her and her husband, writer, producer, couple, you know, Grammy Award win, all that. And yet she talks about the artist management piece of it and how she never signs up to be a therapist, but somehow in just writing music, she ends up being a therapist. And I experienced the same thing akin to your story. To this day, I do PR, right? I haven't done public relations in years I'm good, love. Y'all got it. You can have it because everybody's a publicist these days. But same thing, you know, once you start doing certain type of work, people think, oh, that's what she does. And it's like, y'all, I can switch it up and I can do more things. But yes, resonating with all of that because, yeah, black people listen. Once you get a win, they're like, that's what she do. And it's like, I can keep it and move and do different things. So I love that. (laughs) Yes, and the therapist piece, Particularly if you're an empath, the things you take on dealing with clients. When I was in solo practice, I had grown men break down in my office, right? They, everybody's got their own challenges. I'm here to advise you on contracts and formalizing your business and intellectual property. You crying to me about your marriage, like, or your money issues or how things are not popping the way you thought they would. I had clients who were battling alcoholism or other vices. I had people who had been in television and had been really successful and then lost it all and now trying to figure out how to make their way back and wanting me to help guide them through that process. And they've gained weight. It's so many different things dealing with that industry. You know, the parties were cool and the photos are cool and the people that you meet but it was very dark and it, it weighed on my spirit in a lot of ways. And I had started having health challenges. I done been to urgent care and they were like, you got to go, don't pass, go, go straight to the hospital. Okay. And all of the things that, w- that were happening to my body were a manifestation of stress. Every time the doctor was like, we can't pinpoint why this is happening. We think you're just under too much stress. 
So when I got to that point, I had lost a ton of weight, head looking all big. Like it was just too much. I'm still coming out of a period where me and my eyebrows, I got to stop being so stressed out because like this is ridiculous. And like my friends know because they know I've been on a journey to find my way back as Beyonce said. So I get it. Your stress will actually manifest in your body. And yes, like you said, as an empath and then working with clients and one-on-one relationships, just this last week, I have had to be really into my meditation and my self-care and going to the gym because I'm like, I'll get off a call with a client. I feel like I just got dumped on. And it's not like they're intentionally trying to. They're just like, oh, relief, help, somebody to help me, somebody to talk to, somebody to I can finally get out of my head. And it's like, yes, I'm here for this, but also <laughs> can we just come to Jesus? And so I, I tend to be that for a lot of people. It's like, all right, let's let's get back to center. everything's going to be okay. We're going to figure it out. But that's a, that's a real thing in being an entrepreneur. And especially when working with other black entrepreneurs coming to realize is we are all trying to figure this out. I know for me, I don't have anybody else in my family to look to, to say what a business person should look like, to know who to talk to when I'm dealing with a business, you know, issue, or I'm having a conflict with the client and I'm trying to make sure I'm resolving it in a productive way, you know, whatever. I don't have anybody in my family to turn to. So to lean into my community and my peers and sometimes just being transparent with my clients, like, look, you're building your business. I'm building my business too, you know, and just being honest about that. But I want to talk about in this journey of yours, what defining success has looked like for you? Because I know, like you said, it's been a journey and then you got the family and the friends who still think you're an entertainment lawyer and you are not. (laughs) What does that look like for you in terms of, because I realize a lot of times we think our frustration is in the immediate problems, but I think sometimes our frustration comes in defining what success looks like for us. And then starting from that place and working through our problems that way, I guess. I went through a period after where I was trying to figure out what my career looked like and my career has evolved and flourished into something amazing, you know, now. And, and I look back at that time and I had great years and I had other times I was like, uh, you know, this ain't cutting it until I really hit a, hit a wall. But I have clients from that time who are million dollar businesses. Now I have clients who are now on television and, you know, all of those things that I was a part of building. And while I made another choice and was like, okay, I got to shut this down. I started farming people out to other lawyers. Success. I see that as a successful time because a, it proved that I was good at what I did. And even though I was pouring from an empty cup for a period. So I even see that time as a success because there are certain skills that I developed then both legally and just from business sense that I now use in in my current career and, and other things that I'm building. There's that piece of it that I see as success as well, even though I was looking and I salaries and legal profession for the first like 10 years are public, right? Like, you know, everybody moves sort of in lockstep at these firms. So I knew what my friends were making. I knew what bonuses they were getting. I was seeing the photos on Facebook with the house, the thing, the sign of planning and then, you know, a new build and a house when they were, they were buying. And I'm like still in my same apartment trying to figure it out. So success for me now in hindsight was that I did it and I did it without the resources that I realized a lot of my white counterparts had that I didn't. And I didn't learn that until later. I'm talking to lawyers. I'm like, what did you do when clients didn't pay their bills? They're like, oh, I just borrowed $25,000 from my friend and 
paid it back, you know, when I got the invoices paid or I had this line of credit or my dad, he invested at the beginning a quarter of a million dollars in my practice. So I had the time to figure that out. You know, all these things that I just didn't realize. And I'm working with predominantly black startups, not all. I had some white clients as well, but predominantly black startups who didn't have access to capital in the way that my white clients did. So if you don't have access to capital, your business is not going to survive. And if your business doesn't survive, you can't pay me. So it was a vicious cycle, right? So what success looks like for that period in my life is that I invested in people to help them build and figure out what they were meant to do. And their businesses and their brands went through certain iterations. And a lot of those people are thriving. Some, I couldn't tell you what they're doing, but a lot of them are thriving. So success for that, that part of my life looks like that. Success for me today looks like creating a career in a life that I feel good about, that I find joy in. It doesn't mean every aspect of it I find joy in and gives me the creature comforts that I need. And that is not the same for everybody. I agree. Y'all, this episode and conversation was so good that I had to split it into two parts, okay? But this first part, ooh, baby, so many gems and so much relatable content. Delisha, before we even drop the second part, I just want to say thank you for being vulnerable in this space, like sharing your truths, keeping it real with us, like good, bad, and ugly. That is not an easy thing to do, but you definitely made it look easy. And we appreciate you for telling us your story. Part two is going to air next week. And until then, your favorite space to feel safe, seen, and supported as a Black woman will be here waiting for you. This is She Looks Like Me. 